At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another Bike Radar podcast. This is one of our regular podcasts where we sit down to discuss the latest news, things happening, stuff on site, and I'm joined by two of my esteemed colleagues, Jack Luke and Matthew Loveridge. Matthew Loveridge, what was the big story this week? The hottest story, I think we can all agree, is the launch of the all-new specialised Tarmac SL7. This is big news for various reasons. Obviously, the Tarmac is a really key race bike. Um, It's a very influential design. A lot of bikes draw on the Tarmac, and it's always seen as kind of a predictor of where the industry is going. But it's significant particularly also because specialised has done away with separating their bike lineup into having an aero race bike and a lightweight race bike. They've got rid of the Venge, which was the aero option, and now the Tarmac is the do-it-all bike. And at the same time, they've also gone disc only, so no more rim brake Tarmacs, which some people might shed a tear for, but probably not a lot of you. It's probably worth saying that the bike was officially launched uh, yesterday as of when we're recording this podcast, but it's been out in the wild for a month and a bit. It's variously been leaked officially and non-officially, so it hardly came as a surprise. But like Matthew says, it's a very, very important bike and one that you've thoroughly enjoyed riding, I believe, Matthew, awarding it four stars on BikeRadar.com. Yes, it's a very lovely bike. Specialized was kind enough to send us a top spec S-Works model, uh, complete with SRAM's wireless red ETAP axis group set. So, you know, 12 speed hydraulic disc brakes, very shiny aesthetic. It's got a power meter as well, which is nice. Um, it's pretty phenomenal bike as you would hope because it costs ten and a half thousand pounds, which I think we can all agree <laughs> is a very large sum of money for a bicycle. Uh, but no, it's lovely. Um, I think most of us probably aren't ultimately going to buy the S-Works version, but if you do, what you're getting is a claimed 800-gram frame weight, which is the same as the last-generation Tarmac disc and a good bit lighter. I say a good bit. It's 160 grams lighter than the Venge, the outgoing Venge, now discontinued. And you're getting all of the wonderful aero advances that uh, Specialized offers they claim that the new bike is 45 seconds faster over 40 kilometers than the sl6 most of us aren't going to buy the s-works model but if you do what you're getting is a claimed 800 gram frame set which is the same as the previous sl6 tarmac disc and 160 grams lighter than the venge 
and you're also getting a bike that is claimed to be 45 seconds faster over 40 kilometers compared to the old tarmac. Now, it is actually officially slightly less aerodynamic than the Venge. Specialized won't tell us how much, but they seem to be telling us that it's very, very close. So you can make of that what you will. But there are other key ways in which the bike has changed. The overall shape is very similar, but everything about it has been sort of tweaked a bit. And on a practical level, it's got bigger tyre clearances. It takes a 32mm tyre now, where I think it was 30mm max on the old tarmac disc. And it's got a threaded bottom bracket, which is quite cool. And from an aesthetic point of view, and also an aerodynamic one, it's now got very, very slick cable routing. On the old tarmac, there were great big loops of cable coming from the bar to the frame. Now that's all routed very neatly underneath the stem. And it's... Maybe not the best from a mechanics point of view, but it looks really, really cool. So I, I you know, I've got a couple of questions. I think there, and like you said, um, Specialized sort of still says, and you know, they provided a graph with a handy um, scale of faster <laughs> on and on it. You know, the Venge is still ahead of the tarmac, and obviously the Venge is you know slightly heavier. But I think specialized have, have for always been keen to point out that aero kind of matters a little bit more than weight so i still find it slightly odd that even by their own scale the venge is still faster than the tarmac and yet they're getting rid of the venge i do you have any thoughts on that matthew i think that's a really fair point and you know specialized has the narrative that they are what they said was that the new tarmac sl7 was one bike to roll them all um, because it means, from the point of view of their pro teams, that no longer a rider is going to be having to choose one bike or the other. That's that's the thinking behind it. Now, of course, someone like you would say the aerodynamics always trump the weight factor, but then pro cyclists are quite quite traditional in their approach very often. And in the past, it's been the case of like the the Sagan type rider, the super super strong power guy, would ride the Venge. And then the more all-round climber, Grand Tour-type riders like Julien Alaphilippe would be on the tarmac. And now that's not an issue. But yeah, in absolute terms, it's interesting because, like they say, it's not actually quite as fast. I think from a consumer perspective, you know, the, the narrative around pros and having the choice between the two bikes is kind of irrelevant because we're not pros and... The people looking to buy this bike will likely have one, yes, if, if you want to use specialised marketing, one bike to rule them all. And I think we come to this in nearly every podcast, but the tangible feeling of a lighter bike is far more appealing to uh, a, a lay consumer than the idea of aerodynamics. But also from a shop perspective, being able to tell people that this bike is lighter is, is a far easier sell than marginal aero gains. So from a purely commercial perspective, I think it's fairly clear why Specialized has gone down this route. But like you say, Simon, um, you know, we can all lament the loss of the, the true aero bike, but I've no doubt that in a couple of years' time, Specialized will turn around with this great new innovation called aerodynamics. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll be on a, on a, a Venge Mark II of some description down the line. So I think the only other thing worth bringing up is that the new wheels are particularly interesting as well aren't they Matthew they're so they're kind of it's a whole new wheel set and quite you know maybe a little bit controversially not tubeless ready yeah that's right Ro um specialized their wheel brand Roval launched um a few new wheels uh, a month or two ago and the tarmac comes with the Rapide 
CLX, which is the top end uh, deep section aero wheel set. It's a 60 mil deep rear and a 51 front. And interestingly, the front is quite a lot wider than the rear. The external width is 35 mil and the uh, the rear wheel has an external width of 30.7 mil. <clears throat> and there's some good rel- well there's some good well-reasoned aerodynamic reasons for that because the front wheel is designed to be very stable and also it's significantly wider than the tire which they put on the bike they put a 26 on and we know that having a narrower tire and a wider rim produces better airflow because the front wheel is in clean air so it's a leading edge of the bike and that's really important whereas the considerations are a bit different for the rear wheel so that's all great but as you say it's not a tubeless wheel set and Specialized made a huge song and dance last year when they came out with their turbo rapid air tyre saying, you know, tubeless is the future. You were anticipating pros are going to be riding tubeless because it's going to replace tubulars. And, you know, this seemed to be the direction of travel that the brand was taking. Um, so it was really surprising that they've launched their brand new king of everything race bike and it's not got tubeless wheels. And this, I asked this question at the launch. It was a virtual launch, obviously, social distancing. And they were a little bit vague on the subject because it certainly, it seemed like they do still believe tubeless is where it's at. But they said that to hit the performance goals and by the sounds of it, the weight goals specifically that they had for this bike and for these wheels, they could not hit those by going tubeless because the tubeless rims would have been heavier. But I I, I still have questions about that. Because, like you say, Specialized has been really, really emphatic about the importance of aerodynamics. They've done all that stuff with the wind tunnel. It's been a really key part of their marketing in the past. So to then say, oh, but this tiny weight difference matters more is quite surprising. And I do wonder if there's maybe something else going on, but that's pure speculation. Well, I guess there's more to be seen on that. Um, So let's move on. Jack, what have you got for us this week? Well, uh, a lot. I like to tell people that I'm the sort of person that never gets stressed. And I think that's somewhat true. But the pace at which new things have been launched has been somewhat relentless this last week. So I could I could pick from many. But for me, the standout story was uh, almost what you could call real news. And that was last Thursday. So that was looking at my calendar, the 23rd of uh, July. Uh, Garmin, kind of without warning, Um, a lot of their services shut down. And that included their Garmin Connect app, included their call centres, and while it affected cyclists, and in particular it was stuff like, you know, live tracking, automatic uploads, it also affected their wider uh, companies, so like their uh, navigation for planes and that sort of thing. And speculation was rife amongst the uh, the Twitter, the, the more enthusiastic, we'll call them, users of, of uh, tracking at, uh, software on Twitter. And Garmin made a statement saying that their services were down on the Thursday, but went pretty much quiet until Saturday. Meanwhile, um, a few kind of influential cybersecurity websites were reporting that Garmin had been um, subject to a, a pretty serious ransomware attack. And it wasn't until the Sunday evening that Garmin did indeed confirm that it had been the victim of this attack. Now, there was all sorts of other rumours saying that they were being held to a $10 million ransom, and none of that's been confirmed. But the key takeaway from this was that essentially nobody's user data was accessed, none of the Garmin pay data was accessed. 
but it was still notable to see just how reliant, for example, Garmin stuff is on uh, the Connect software and an internet connection to work fully. Now, you could very well go and plug your Garmin in after a ride, like the good old days, uh, and upload straight to Strava, because as we know, if something's not on Strava, it didn't happen. And I had to borrow my partner's laptop because my MacBook Pro doesn't have a USB port. So that was a that was a, a pleasant throwback for this crippling millennial. First world problem, truly. But nonetheless, it's happened. Things are beginning to um, get back on track. But it was it was notable how much of a um, a noise it made online. Very briefly, just from my perspective, you know from bike radar's perspective you know we report on lots and lots of things and it's always very consistent how much interest there is in stories about garmin or strava or wahoo or Kamut, these kind of broad platforms that absolutely everybody uses so to see what was essentially you know almost like a psa about oh by the way garmin's down just in case you're wondering it went crazy on site and it just kind of illustrates how popular it is and how much people rely on it for their day-to-day riding I do find that um, ever since I got a Garmin that does the automatic upload thing, you get you get incredibly complacent about it. And I did notice a few days ago, I was like, oh, I don't, my ride hasn't appeared, but I didn't really think anything of it. And then, of course, the story broke. Uh, are you guys of the mindset that if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen? Mm, I'm going to defer to Simon here as the uh, true nerd amongst us, as the, the data geek. I personally like to show off if I do a big ride, but the numbers beyond that aren't particularly impressive. So what about you, Simon? Yeah, I, 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 it, you know, I was a bit unfazed by this whole thing anyway. I mean, I'm still one of those nerds who's using uh, open source Golden Cheetah software to kind of analyze all my power and ride data, really. So I've, I've had to be, I've been plugging my Garmin into the computer to get the files off it anyway. Um, you know, I, I thought Garmin responded quite well to the whole thing and, and they, yeah, it was obviously good that no kind of customer data has apparently been <coughs> accessed or lost. So yeah, I I, I didn't think too much of it. You, you know, these these things, these things are unfortunately a part of the modern world, I suppose. And yeah, if we if we have to miss out on a you know two or three days of Strava data, you get it back anyway. So if you took any KOMs during that time, you know, <laughs> it's not a concern for someone like me. But if you did, you can still get them a few days later. Yeah, I didn't need Garmin, uh, sorry Strava to tell me that when I rode with Simon and uh, our former colleague Joe on the weekend, I was an absolute bit. So I knew that despite the data not backing it up, I, I had a, a less than impressive ride. Matthew, do you want to add anything to that? or is... I was just going to say, I, th- I quite like the idea that somebody's having to go back through rides and add <laughs> asterisks to all your uh, leaderboards to uh, <laughs> revise that it's, it's like it's like a doping scandal's broken across strava <laughs> <laughs> all right well if, on that case we'll, we'll move on to the next one then i suppose the one from me then i wanted to talk about is the uk government's announcement that they're kind of kick-starting a two billion pound cycling and walking revolution and of course they couldn't announced that without a pun so of course they called it gear change (laughs) (laughs) that's really bad Uh, yeah it's terrible terrible and uh, you know every single statement contained the word shift shifting gears yeah blah 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 so but there is some really good news in there and it's you know it's kind of come off the back of the coronavirus pandemic and this whole sort of you know final realization that 
as a nation, we really need to get people moving in other ways than cars because we need to be healthier. We, you know, we, we need to reduce air pollution. We need to reduce traffic, all of these things. And so really, really good news. And the kind of headline... The headline things, you know, are the two billion pounds worth of investment, which has already been announced, which is, you know, not huge, huge, huge sums of money, but it's, you know, it's a good, it's a, it's a good chunk of cash, and hopefully there'll be more coming down the pipeline in the future. But they've basically committed to thousands of miles of new protected bike lanes, cycle training for any child or adult who wants it, and a first ever zero emission transport city, which I'm not actually sure what that means, but it sounds good. I think for me, the, the new money is obviously very welcome, but there isn't a great deal of new money in this. We've already had, I would say, three significant announcements about investment in, in active travel this year. So how much of that will fall under those previous announcements isn't totally clear. For me, the standout thing was the new, um, essentially what is being billed as the transport equivalent of Ofsted. So Active Travel England will be a new, will have a new commissioner that will basically judge the quality of cycle paths and cycle infrastructure, as well as walking infrastructure, I should say, uh, in cities. And essentially, refuse to fund your own, you know, your paint-only bike lanes. It is about making protected physical or standalone cycle paths. So having a new body that's going to kind of keep an eye on that is, is really key because councils, I assume now, have targets which they have to meet. Cycling infrastructure isn't regulated, as it were, here in the UK, and it can be really, really poor. So for me, that's the real standout news. And there was other stuff as well. There's a new £50 voucher you can use to claim uh, to bring your old bike back up to working order. Perhaps not the best thing, because obviously it assumes that you have an old bike which is worthy of being repaired. So, you know, it's maybe not the most uh, inclusive way of getting people on the bike, but still, it's better than nothing. Um and then, like Simon said, the compulsory, or not compulsory, the uh, free training for everyone is obviously a good thing. I I'm, can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it was something like a fifth of adults in the UK actually can't ride a bike. And of one of the things that we saw a real spike for um, when lockdown began on site was people searching for how to ride a bike. So it may seem for you know, lo those listening to this podcast, you're likely an enthusiast cyclist. That might seem baffling, but, you know, barriers... To cycling aren't just infrastructure based it could be the most basic stuff like not having a bike and not knowing how to ride one so i'll, I'll approach it with caution but it's certainly no bad thing matthew how do you how do you feel about this you excited i can see i mean you look very excited on screen i'd echo most of what jack says i think i really want to be optimistic about this stuff because obviously, you know, it's, it's what we believe in. We want more people to ride bikes. We want cycling to be more accessible and inclusive. And we want it to be a viable alternative for transport. At the same time, though, past experiences that governments are really good at talking the talk on a lot of these things. And if it doesn't come with a kind of an attempt to change cultural attitudes to cycling, then maybe it's not going to achieve anything. So... I don't it's really hard to make those kind of changes and to introduce policies that have a real effect and it's it's all very well saying like you know we're allocating more money to cycle lanes and stuff and you know we want to make things more affordable and accessible but at the same time if you're not disincentivizing other things like if, if people are still incentivized because it's cheaper or more convenient to drive their cars into cities or to do other things which are not ideal 
then they're going to do those things. And we're still we're still an awfully long way from a kind of a more European approach, European in the sense of continental Europe, where we we look at our cities and we go like, this is the quality of city that we want. This is, you know, the kind of idyll. And there's not a lot of ambition, I think, with these things. And you get, you know, there's some great champions for cycling, people like Chris Boardman, but they they don't really get listened to as much as they should. Mm. And then you've you've got the huge intransigence of a lot of local councils and stuff. And there's always people who are allowed to speak up and say, oh, you know, cyclists uh, jump red lights. They, you know, they, they're mm. dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Even though there's no statistical evidence to support any of that stuff, those voices are still incredibly prominent. And we still get columnists in major national newspapers writing about, you know, the cycling scourge as though this is like the 1890s and there's people on penny farthings knocking you over <laughs> on dirty lanes. And yeah. I, I really want to be optimistic, but I also have this kind of fatigue about the whole business, sure. unfortunately. Oh, and one thing... I'll, on, sorry, on the £50 voucher scheme, worth pointing out for listeners, because somebody will bring us up on this, that's only for England. It's not for the other countries of the Union. Yes, the devolved nations have got their own plans. I was very keen, obviously, to uh, point out when I wrote, there was another one about prescribing cycling on uh, the NHS. So as part of trying to get people healthier, you know, you can say, well, we want you to start cycling or being more active on your journey to work. And I was very keen to point out that that was already trialled in 2018 in Scotland and 2019 in Wales, that that's perhaps my uh, Celtic agenda pushing ahead. Um, I think the cultural thing that you touch on, Matthew, is quite important because, like you say, you can have all the infrastructure in the world. And that is, you know, it's a big barrier. I think the state, uh, the stat that Cycling UK share is something like 86% of adults in the UK who don't currently cycle believe that the, you know the roads are too dangerous so that is that's obviously a clear barrier but culturally we aren't encouraged to take a bike over the over cars and as things like city centers shutting down to diesel vehicles uh, gets rolled in you know there'll be a kind of a forced cultural shift but that kind of mass participation which is required to make it normalized just I can't see it materializing from these announcements alone. There are there are other, other things like the, the the highway code is going to be changed, I believe, to protect pedestrians and cyclists more, and councils will be given more powers to tack traffic offences and pilot schemes, that sort of thing. But I think yeah, we're a long way off, but hopefully it will be good. I did find uh, during lockdown that. Now I, I didn't I didn't go into the city during lockdown because I don't live that close to it. But just the overall experience of the roads during the initial weeks of lockdown was amazing, and it was this kind of preview of this world. Now don't, don't get me wrong, I really like cars and driving, and I have a motorbike and stuff. But you know, in the right place for those things, and cities is not the right place. It's just not. They don't work that well they're a terrible way to get around it's so inefficient having single occupant cars in cities it's a terrible way to commute if you've ever tried to drive into bristol at rush hour it's just a nightmare don't do it so yeah i'm a little bit optimistic we'll see what happens yeah i think i'm the same i'm kind of cautiously optimistic i think it's good that this is kind of as, as jack said the sort of second or third kind of commitment to improving cycling that we've seen this year um you know, it's a shame it's kind of taken a global pandemic 
to, to, <laughs> yeah. kick, to yeah. kind of kick this stuff off. But if this is the one, you know, if this is one good thing that we get out of it, then it could be a really transformational thing. I mean, obviously, I totally agree with Matthew that we need to have a more holistic approach to this kind of thing because. As you say, it's not as it's not a simple matter of just installing a few cycle lanes and then assuming that that will do the rest. It it, it is going to require a complete kind of change in in attitudes and culture and and city design, you know, kind of from the ground up. But it's got to start somewhere. And and yeah, I, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic. I think. Any any, I think, any kind of closing comments? Yeah, just on the very last point about kind of people's attitudes here where I am in, in South Bristol, I think it's either this year or next that diesel cars are going to be banned from the city and um, more to do with air pollution than, than car usage. It'll be interesting to see how that changes or if it has any effect on people's behaviours. That'll be my kind of first-hand experience with you know, the changing shape of cities. But it, it seems inevitable that eventually we're going to be at this stage where you know, if you're commuting from out of town, you can go as far as you park and ride and then you're on your own or on the bus for uh, for getting in. And I would personally welcome that move, but maybe I'm speaking from a position of privilege living in Bristol's fashionable south side where my office and ability to work from home are all very, very accessible. Mm, all right, well... Really, really interesting discussion. I'm sure we'll be talking about this much more in the future. I mean, I hope we will anyway. If it disappears, we'll be very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think that's probably all we've got time for this week, though. So thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much to Jack Luke and Matthew Loveridge for joining me today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.